Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and today's guest is Dr. Joe Zhang, an intensive care doc and health data scientist who holds a Wellcome Trust Fellowship in Health Informatics and Artificial Intelligence at Imperial College London. Dr. Zhang has extensive experience in developing and deploying informatics and data solutions in the NHS, working at the intersection of data science, policy, and infrastructure. I had a great time talking with Dr. Zhang and learning about the healthcare system in the UK. I always love interviewing guests from outside the US. It's a refreshing new perspective and a reminder that there are many things we can improve in our own healthcare system here at home. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast. So thank you so much, Dr. Zhang, for joining us today on our show. Uh, our first question, yeah, our first question that we ask everyone is, can you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess in terms of medicine, uh, so I went to medical school at Oxford and first trained in London as an internal medicine physician uh, before going into specialty training as an intensivist. Um, and the machine learning side, I guess it's probably not a, a usual path into machine learning. I went into academia uh, really very late and uh, really my experiences have mostly been through uh, more applied work with clinical data and uh, informatics and, um, you know, for any clinician uh, you're going to encounter uh, these really directly relevant questions right on the shop floor which suffer from a lack of data or a need to use data so i'm not i'm not talking about big picture academic questions like how do we cure x i'm talking about the immediately relevant stuff like you know i want to know this about my patient cohort or why these operational pathways are stuck and uh useful data is often locked behind different clinical systems right so my route into machine learning was really first learning about data management and uh, interoperability and data standards and data engineering, but then ultimately using data science to answer these questions. So I think in that context, machine learning very much is a tool. Um, you know, you don't need machine learning for many use cases, but in some use cases, it's a very useful uh, tool indeed, and one that was very important to pick up. Did you have a background in data science beforehand? No, not at all. So uh, it was learning by necessity you know and i remember very early on uh, a lot of work we done in excel and in spreadsheets and then you know you sort of naturally pick up databases sort of sql and database management from there and then wow. python and i mean but i think that's a that's a more and more common route you see nowadays uh, you know more and more clinicians are getting into data and data science and clinicians aren't trained that way you know clinicians don't necessarily oh, no, have yeah. so and the learning resources out there are absolutely amazing to get the, I don't know if you watch Josh Starmer on YouTube, for example, or, you know, other people who post these videos, that quality of teaching and training, you'd have to get in a lecture theater in Harvard. You know, <laughs> but now it's just out there. So it's great democratization of um, data science. Mm. Wow. That's impressive that you learned it on the job. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not. I'm definitely not the only one. It's getting more <laughs> and more common nowadays. I also wanted to add that you're our very first guest from the UK. Uh, oh, really? That's oh, pretty honored. cool. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm i excited because not only are you our first guest from the UK, you are an intensivist. Uh, I'm currently on my ICU rotation, which is my second to last okay. rotation of medical school. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. Uh, you enjoy it? Uh, I'm enjoying it. It's pretty cool. Um, it's, you know, the... the, the uh, the ICU, even though it's the intensive care unit, it's kind of a 
peaceful most of the time if that makes any sense like it's oh, kind of wow. i reckon i see is very different from ours then <laughs> yeah it's kind of chill but yeah um this is it's, kind of a silly controlled, right it's hmm? it's often controlled it's, it's often more controlled, especially when things go on you've got a lot more control yeah yeah, yeah. Really um, chaotic, it's is, probably the, the like, most yeah it's not chaotic at all it's very um it's very controlled we just kind of walk around the unit and then just just adjust things here and there and then talk a lot and i think we do a little bit more that uh, <laughs> yeah true true like, maybe, maybe my experience is unique in that it's just you know kind of a just chill hospital <laughs> yeah um this is kind of a silly question i was wondering do you guys use what, what do you guys use for ehr in the uk uh it totally varies depending on what hospital you're at i, I guess we're talking about secondary care ehr uh, so mm -hmm. i think at last count there was around 30 different vendors oh my uh, god was very little interoperability between them or even between software implementations of the same vendor at different hospitals next door to each other. That's the type of situation that we're in. Things mm -hmm. have gotten much better over the past two, three years, particularly in terms of uh, shared care records. Uh, but, you know, you can find Epic in a few different places. Epic's getting uh, more and more popular in different places, mostly, I think, because of the customizability. We have a lot of Cerner um, oh, Cerner, really? Oh, man. It's, it's a lot of, a lot. most of them are American vendors, uh, but That's there's a lot of different vendors in different places. That's cool that uh, you guys are using American EHR. Um, maybe it's cool from your side of the lake. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe this is a joke, but or, I'll, I'll make the joke. For that. You know, it's kind of like, because, you know, America was formerly a British colony, yeah. uh, but now... Yeah. But now the British healthcare system yeah. is using an American EHR. I think that's kind of it's like a whole full circle thing. Americans. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and and I was wondering, um, what is so you know I'm not familiar with the the British healthcare system at all or the NHS. Um, I was wondering, can you could you tell us about the NHS and like how your work, uh, is involved with them? Yeah, sure. I mean. Uh, the NHS is a, a national healthcare system, hence the name National Health Service. And the idea is that uh, healthcare is free and accessible at the point of care for everyone. So, you know, it takes uh, your employment, it takes your demographics, you know, it takes your wealth out of the picture. And uh, it's the same standard of care uh, applied evenly across the population. Uh, you know, on paper and for the decades since it was conceived, it's been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I wouldn't want to go to any other type of healthcare system. Um, and, you know, particularly in areas like acute care, you know, the NHS is, is world class and world leading. Obviously, you will have resource problems, which we're going through at the moment, uh, where, you know, a national health service has to be funded adequately, right? And especially yeah. when you've got an aging population with lots of chronic disease that's uh, emerging, this kind of balance between resource and spending and, and healthcare provision is just becomes more and more difficult. And as a result, yeah. you, you read about things like elective waiting times going up and stuff. And, you know, that is generally the case. Um, I mean, we won't go into a discussion about like the politics behind it and, and the funding. <laughs> It's it's obviously very different from the type of a healthcare system uh, that you have in America. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I I don't work directly for the uh, NHS uh, in that the NHS as a government body, which does a lot of uh, so NHS England is the government body with a, a director called NHS Transformation. So it's that's like the policy uh, body which decides a lot of central things. Uh, but I guess everyone is uh, indirectly an employee of the NHS if you're a mm. clinician working. 
health service in, in the UK. Um, so I guess before, most, most recently during the pandemic, uh, I spent a couple of years as an ARDS and ECMO fellow at one of our national uh, ECMO centres, uh, where I also did some work building up data assets and doing some research in COVID. Um, I'm now mostly actually doing academic work and some policy and uh, project work around London. Oh, cool. What, what kind of work? Um, so I'm uh, doing academic work at Imperial College, which in, is including a PhD uh, and some more technical project work, which is sort of around the London region. It's still focused on healthcare data flows and AI infrastructure. Um, so some of the things we're looking at are uh, mapping and quantifying data flows and value across sort of the whole data supply chain, uh, but also more practically trying to redirect these flows into uh, infrastructure where we can support uh, more advanced analytics and AI. But also, you know, traditional clinical data science questions around intensive care and the like. So when you say da data flows, do you mean throughout the different hospitals in the system, kind of coordinating all of their, mm -hmm. their data? Uh, so data in the UK is quite unique uh, in that we have probably one of the most richest, the most granular sources of patient data anywhere in the world. But the way we utilize it is probably, you know, less than perfect. Mm -hmm. um, what do you going... mean by the granular? What do you mean by that? So, um, for example, in America, a lot of your national data comes from claims databases, uh, insurance ah. claims databases. You also have electronic health record vendors who can curate their own data assets that are particular to, you know, their vendor or their hospital network. Yeah. In the UK, uh, all primary, pretty much entirely all primary care providers have an electronic health record and there's only uh, basically two well three vendors of uh, that kind of electronic health record software around oh. the country and the uh, the is it like Cerner or epic or is it like a different a separate kind and, uh, so they, they're actually or they used to be uh, british companies uh, emis and tpp being the biggest ones um, i think emis i think i think emis has just been bought by optum um, oh, oh uh, I'm an Amer American company here in uh, my backyard yeah, check that, check that. in I Minnesota. Oh, really? Yeah, Optum is, you know, down the highway. Wow, okay. Um, and, you know, so w we actually have very broad access to uh, all of this routine GP data, and it's uh, relatively easily accessed by uh, APIs through the vendor. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so... Every code that every patient has ever had recorded on the GP record is accessible as part of that routine health record and also potentially accessible for uh, research. At a secondary That's awesome. Care, yeah, so th there's that. And then at the secondary care level, we have a very rich administrative data set. So it's kind of similar to your claims data, right? But because it's one national system, all that data is coded and structured in the same way. So we know when patients went into hospital, roughly what happened to them, what illnesses they had, and that's used for uh, our equivalent of you know reimbursement. Um, so those data, they can come together, they can be extracted, but they also flow, right? Because they move from A to B. You collect them in a place, you transfer them to a research environment, who then licenses that data to someone else and passes it to other people. And what you end up is from a small number of providers and provider patient interactions, more and more users further and further down the chain. So oh, that okay, users of the data. data. Yeah, exactly. So it gets passed down this chain, it flows down this chain, uh, you know, and it's used in many, many different ways. A lot of it is very opaque. It's very difficult to know what happens. A lot of uh, revenue is made by data use. 
you know, for development of different things, for research, for licensing to pharma and commercial companies. It's not necessarily a, a lot of that value isn't necessarily seen by patients and clinicians, you know, who generate the data in the first place. And the way that the data flows, you know, through various technologies and stuff, you know, isn't necessarily suitable for the types of use cases that we want to implement in the NHS in the future. So that that's a long winded way of explaining what I mean by data flow. But but I guess it gives um, that was really cool. an idea, you know, what data infrastructure looks like in the UK. So who dictates the the data flow? Is it kind of the people who want uh, how yeah how who who uses this data? It's a mixture of uh, central uh, policy uh, and central bodies uh, like NHS Digital who collect and curate a lot of that data, as well as uh, local providers and partnerships with providers who will take that data and use it for you know service or give it to local regional payers as well as commercial interests. So, you know, data is obviously valuable. It's valuable for uh, developing things. It's valuable for making AI models. Um, it's valuable for monitoring treatment effects and, and uh, drug effects and things like that in, in real world data, uh, generate real world evidence. Uh, so th there's a lot of pressure to be able to buy and use data for these purposes as well. So it's really a hodgepodge of all of these things. You know, it, it's the same reason why we have so many vendors in secondary care. Uh, because, you know, we say you have to have an EHR and each provider has their own priorities and there's dozens of American companies competing to be bought by the hospitals. I have one thought and I have one question. My thought is, um, so you assist in the, the movement, the trafficking of the, the data? You know, trafficking is a... Uh, well, tra yeah, tra yeah, in, the, in the cellular sense, you know how they have... Um, yeah. Uh, you know, like endoplasmic reticulum or a, a Golgi apparatus that assists in membrane trafficking of yeah. cellular um, things. Like, would you say you're kind of like you assist in the movement of the the data or is that, is that am I wrong? I, I mean, in terms of what I do with this area, um, the so part of my work is I'm trying to map all the data flows. Uh, wow. So work out where the data is going, quantify it and be able to describe it in a way that you can uh, look at things like uh, the infrastructure, but also things like the value that's been generated along that chain. But the more practical side of that is uh, there's, so your listeners probably won't be aware of uh, this, but there's, there's a lot of data infrastructure transformation happening in the NHS at the moment. Um, there's a lot of investment available to develop new uh, sort of research environments, data stores, that kind of thing. And one of the things that we are looking to try and do nationally is start to unify our data flows. To, wow. So to not have data going to hundreds and thousands of different places at the same time, but having these sort of more centralized big data collections and people can then come to the data. So part of the outcomes of all of this mapping process is, is looking at how does this way of you know moving data from A to B, how can you build infrastructure around that to facilitate uh, more future looking use cases, you know, and that's where it comes into AI. But essentially uh, around London, for example, we're trying to put together a centralized uh, architecture to take in all of these flows around the region and host it and potentially use it to host analytics and AI models and things like that. That is, that is so cool. Um, is there any precedent for a centralized data infrastructure like this in, in any other country or any other, are you guys 
building this from the ground up or is this based on I mean so it's not a new concept um in you know in in the US I guess your data repositories this kind of centralized data is very commercially driven right so yeah uh, you look at epic and cerner they have their own big data warehouses you look at your big hospital provider networks they will often have their own you know duke etc mayo certainly they'll have their own big data warehouses yeah uh, and then you look at your real world data real whatever companies you know like etienne flatiron and obviously others who use you know private oncology networks and claims data etc to build up their own real world evidence data databases um, and it's the same kind of concept, except because in the uh, UK and the NHS, these data flows have a lot more central direction. Uh, you know, the the data flows are partly in the public domain, so held by, for example, NHS Digital and this sort of big central um, research environment by universities, um, but also by sort of semi-public or non-profit or sometimes even private databases who sign you know agreements with different providers and then centralize data in their databases i think the difference is um at the moment this process is is difficult to audit and difficult to track and also these uh, data repositories are quite often duplicative right so they hold the same type of data or the same data and they then license it to different people and it's use, usable for only a few purposes which is the kind of observational research that you do in this kind of secure environment uh, one question that I want to ask is, do people have to consent to their data being used or is it part of receiving this national health care that your data will be used? That's a really good question. So uh, if your data is uh, identified, uh, then you need to have uh, explicit consent from patients uh, unless it's for a certain set of use cases where you can get a sort of special exemption, but we, we, we don't have to uh, go into that. So, so a lot of the data governance is regulated by uh, uh, sort of uh, data protection regulation legislation that we have in the UK. And if your data is anonymized, it doesn't come under that uh, legislation. But mm. there's a lot, also a lot of guidance uh, in addition to the legislation, and there's rules around fair use of data and transparency in data which means that even without direct consent for data use, you're supposed to be able to keep, have to keep patients fully informed of how their data might be used. And we have, instead of consent, we have opt-out procedures for patients to say, I don't want my healthcare data to be taken and used for any of these uh, uses. What percentage of people would you say opt-out in the general population? Oh, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know the uh, the numbers. It, it goes up and down uh, because... It depends on what's in the newspapers to an extent. <laughs> we've, we've had in the past 10 years a, at least a couple of uh, attempts at producing a entirely unified national, uh, one national data infrastructure, especially for primary care data. And each time, you know, it's received a lot of opposition in the news and the media, you know, data being stolen and used for stuff. And then everyone starts opting out of these things, et cetera. So, uh, I, I believe NHS Digital publishes figures about uh, national opt-outs, and mm -hmm. that's one that uh, people can Google and have a look if they're interested. Mm. Um, my next question, I was going to ask about uh, your new publication, congratulations, by the way, about a vertically integrated approach to AI applica application development. Uh, I was wondering 
you could tell us our listeners about uh, what you meant by this vertically integrated approach um, and some examples that you've seen. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the first thing I should say is that it's not, it's not really anything novel, right? So people have been trying to address this big uh, translational gap in AI for a while now. Um, and secondly, I think it's worth saying that I probably stand at one extreme of this viewpoint. So don't take you know everything I say to, to heart. But you know, with with that said, we're uh, trying to reframe this question of how you translate uh, AI, uh, because as you know, and this is not going to be anything new to you or your listeners, we have mountains and mountains of clinical AI research being churned out on quite often on the same data sets. You know, we've got a model to predict this, and it's got this amount of accuracy, right? Uh, we, we're trying to move out of this traditional lens or, or even this traditional comfort zone of academic science. And the headline really for vertical integration is that it's uh, broadly recognizing that uh, AI is an entire world that exists outside of this model that you've built. You know, if you look at any product, uh, it depends on a functioning supply chain and it depends a lot on the real world context where you want to use it or where you want to sell it. And what we write about is that any AI model is dependent on, uh, firstly, the supply of data, you know, where that data actually exists and can flow to the model in, in uh, the real world. Uh, secondly, the human and the, the technical context of a production environment where you bring your model for deployment. And thirdly, what is the tangible added value of your model in the real world, not paper accuracy. And what it means is really targeting all of these things from the outset to make sure they aren't a problem later on that's going to stop mm. your model working in the real world. And that includes mainly setting up the right infrastructure and uh, setting up the right teams. What was the un other end of the extreme that you're talking about? You said you were one end of the extreme. What was the other? What's the other end of the extreme? I mean, the, the one end of the extreme is we need to advance algorithmic science. So everything is about making the model architectures better. You know, I mean, none of these oh, exist. Okay. But, you know, there is obviously a middle of the road between the kinds of things that I'm saying and what is happening, you know, in, in the real world. Mm, I th what's your general feel? Would you say that we're more ahead in terms of the algorithmic science or in terms of the other, you know, the implementation, the infrastructure, the... Oh, um... definitely the algorithmic science. Like we have mm -hmm. made leaps and bounds, especially in particular in uh, computer vision in particular uh, over the yeah. last decade language processing and transformer models and the like you know we are doing really well on that uh, if you mm -hmm. clinical models uh the data is yet to catch up and definitely that sort of implementation infrastructure in my view is yet to catch up i mean i realize this is probably all a bit nebulous so uh, i mean so let's say um let's talk about electronic health record data right and in, in the yep. nhs that, that's what i do uh like there's tons of research building ai models on the type of data that we talked about. So that was a good conversation to have, uh, that type of NHS uh, data. It's very rich, it's very granular. It's routinely collected electronic health record data. So let's say I want to make an AI model, right? I, I wanna predict uh, mortality in patients with hypertension because that's what I've got funding for and I'm in a lab which does hypertension work. So I look at NHS data. These are all like nice curated data sets. There's like multiple data sets, multiple sources of data. I make a governance and research application. I specify my question. I say, this is the cohort I want to look at. I wait like a year to get my <laughs> application approved. And I access the research environment where I can train my model. I can test it and I get a really nice rock score and a nice F1 score. So, and I publish a paper, right? And then what? So, you ah, know, yeah. I've gone through the process. I've trained a model, I've published a paper. 
what happens next? So if I wanted to deploy it, where would I deploy it? You know, I've got a really nice, really rich research data set, research data source in this research environment. But where does this supply of data exist in the real world? Where do these data flows that we talked about come together to support this model that I've just trained? How would this model even perform in the real world? You know, if I yeah. put it there, it would probably be very biased. And part of this is because we're training on data sets which are designed for observational research. And that means they've undergone transformations and sort of mappings when you join them together to allow these curated cohorts, right, to be selected for whatever your research question is. And that's very nice for a observational researcher, but it doesn't reflect uh, variations in code quality and variability across, you know, your practices or your providers in real life. And, you know, in, in the real world, there's a risk of bias from inequitable service provision that means some patients won't even make it to the data oh, so there's yeah. multiple biases there which you know aren't taken account of in these curated research data sets and it doesn't matter how many of these data sets you validated on it's still the same problem but mm. let's say what the data flow right who's going to deploy the model and maintain the model so you know i'm a scientist where are the engineers that machine learning ops teams who have expertise with production and that means setting the model up. That means building the pipelines that feed the model and the pipelines to take the outputs and put them into something useful. Um, there isn't a central team where there isn't that sort of group of expertise that's very easy to call upon in the clinical space. And let's say even by some miracle, let's say you roll the model out, right? you deploy it and clinicians are getting the outputs. What are your clinicians going to do with these uh, model outputs? So we talked about the NHS earlier, and you know, you the NHS, it's a health system that's struggling at the moment with staff to patient ratios and, and healthcare access. You know, if you haven't got a clear intervention that's really impactful built into your decision support output, what are clinicians gonna do? You hmm. have a flag for a patient that says they're really high risk or something. What's the intervention there? Do you book appointments yeah. for patients? Do you refer them? Is this helpful if you do this intervention? You know when every appointment is mm, valuable. Mm. The real world context is, is difficult, right? And if you don't develop your model with an early view to how you translate it, it just adds to clinical uncertainty. Yeah. You know, if, if you're pushing a positive intervention, you could be denying that intervention to someone else. And, you know, finally, you need mechanisms in place to know that the model isn't causing harm in the real world or exacerbating biases in, you know, service provision and your training data. And that can be quite complicated because you're collecting and looking for new data flows and a new data source to look at. So I'm, I'm really, I'm just ranting. At this no, this is fascinating. This is, this is great. You know, so I mean, I please continue, <laughs> you know, the vendors, many of them, American vendors are developing clinical decision support tools uh, without really thinking about any of any of these sort of eventualities, particularly problems with bias. And, you mm -hmm. know, I've spoken, American vendors who, who are trying to sell us their uh, USA population trained uh, health uh, models to apply to UK electronic health records data. You know, and these models, the algorithms are opaque. They haven't been revalidated in years. This is algorithmic colonialism, reverse colonialism. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's not ideal. And I, I think it just, this, this is why what we call vertical integration, but there's, you know, different ways to, to pitch it. It's quite important. It means thinking about this whole A to Z pipeline uh, from the beginning. Mm. That's a, that is a fascinating thought. You know, I, 
I, I just came up with that term algorithmic colonialism, but I, I kind of, <laughs> it kind of feels like that. You know, like we're, we train this on our people, but we're going to put the, we're going to sell this to you to use on your population. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and speaking of Epic and the clinical decision support tools, um, you shared with me this PLOS paper kind of talking about how, especially, you know, the example they use is their sepsis prediction tool and how it's mm. terrible at predicting sepsis and uh, it like is not regulated at all. And they're, uh, and it's just, it's interesting cause, cause they already have the EHR and it's like just thrown in there. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, like, uh, with the, the Epic thing is, I think it's something that's quite, uh, well known, like others have written about it and others have conducted external, uh, evaluations of it and found that it's actually really not very good. Um, like plenty of, uh, false positives, like lots of false alarms, but also not particularly you know, sensitive, uh, either. And, um, so we wrote that piece to discuss this weird dichotomy in, uh, regulation in America, at least of these, uh, AI tools. On one hand, you can have a device that's goes through all the regulatory scrutiny, which you know, some would argue still isn't enough, but at least it goes through something. And then you have clinical decision support, uh, which doesn't go un come under any sort of regulatory umbrella, but often performs a very similar function. But the difference is the CDS is integrated by a vendor into their existing you know, software offering. And the difference is the FDA says one recommends while the other tells you what to do, right? So recommendation apparently isn't something that should be uh, regulated as much as the other side, which is software as a medical device. But in the paper, uh, we basically argue that the distinction is pretty nebulous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, you're still dealing with sick patients. And if uh, AI is giving you a flag for something, you're in a situation where that flag is there or it's not, right? So it's mm -hmm. always going to enter your thinking. And no matter how much of what you understand of how the tool works, that flag is going to be an undeniable additional data point in how you think about and how you approach your patient. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that AI is doing something. It's affecting your uh, decision-making. Yeah. It's um, like a seventh vital sign. And exactly, you know, and it, it, we're in a situation where devices like that, uh, or decision support tools like that aren't regulated. They're not transparent. And we have mm. no idea about how well they perform and what hidden biases there may be, how they're trained, how they're validated, et cetera. So it's, it's a funny situation. Um, but you know, the, that hmm. piece, uh, the timing of that piece was quite good, uh, because Epic soon after that came out announced that they were, uh, revalidating their, uh, algorithm. And of <laughs> course the FDA came out recently with their, um, uh, further clarification of what a clinical decision support tool is. Oh, and uh, yeah, it, what is their further clarification of it for our listeners? Uh, uh, much, much the same. Uh, I'm not a total expert in this area, but in, in my opinion, they, it just seems like they're tying themselves into knots a little bit, trying to enforce this distinction. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Um, is there a similar, uh, regulatory body in the NHS or in the UK? Yeah, so, uh, since, you know, Brexit and then, and we left the EU, uh, so up till next year, I believe that, uh, AI devices are still regulated under the European Union uh, CE mark, but there's been a lot of consultation and sort of policy papers and stuff from our authority, which is the MHRA, uh, and there's going to be a, a new look into how we can approach medical AI devices. So we'll see. 
Mm. We'll see what happens in the next uh, year or two. Oh man, I haven't heard the word Brexit in years. I like I forgot that, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> yeah, we try not to think about it too much. <laughs> um, let's also talk about the the global clinical AI dashboard that you've been working on. Um, do you want to tell us about it? Um, yeah. So that's on a it's on a website called AIforHealth.app. Uh, that was uh, it, it was kind of just like a side fun project. It's the kind of stuff that you know, a few friends over a couple of beers, just be like, hey, should we do this? Can we do this? Should we try? It was sort of, it ties into the whole thing about a huge amount of AI research being published, right? If you search AI on PubMed, the, the graph of publications just looks like this. It's almost a vertical line, you know, at, at one yeah. point. And it just makes it increasingly harder to look through this landscape and know what's happening. And you, you know, literature searches are crude. Uh, they're not very sensitive and not very specific. And, you know, trying to do something like a review to look at what AI papers have done real world validation or have validated the algorithm against like a human equivalent or against something like that. It's very difficult. Um, so we just, we thought uh, we would try and train uh, natural language processing models to sort of do this review process automatically. And, you know, if anything, because uh, none of us are, are AI or NLP scientists by by um, you know by background. If anything, I think this shows the power and the democratization of AI and data science because we've taken these enormously powerful transformer models that I think was originally created by Google and then fine tuned and then uh, trained further by you know lots of other scientists and applied them very simply with a few lines of code and training on some labeled data to make really accurate predictions and classifications of uh, these AI papers. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, it's a, or if, if you uh, look, so we, we put it up as a paper, you can probably search it by uh, Googling interactive dashboard for AI. It's in Lancet Digital Health, uh, but all the code is public. You know, it, it's not com complicated code to train and deploy these. Um, so we put these all online and put a dashboard front end. Um, and, you know, people can browse the data sets. And what it does is it firstly finds all uh, original AI research. It classifies it by uh, what we call maturity, so it detects research which is you know prospectively validated or uh, validated in a comparison with something else, and then it classifies everything by subject and domain and by data type. Um, so that runs uh, in near real time. So every twenty four hours, it scrapes papers and runs it through the pipeline. Um, wow. So yeah, it was a, it was a nice project. It started up being like a sort of hobby thing, and then it ended up expanding quite a bit and turning into a global collaboration of people labeling cool. so it was a very cool cool thing to work on any interesting findings or any interesting thoughts perspectives yeah, on making yeah. this i mean the the uh it's sort of as you'd expect uh, but we can quantitatively establish demonstrate that there's an inflection point where you start to get more mature research so there's an inflection point where you move from uh, that sort of retrospective uh, static data set research onto validation on uh, prospective data or that sort of comparative trial type of research that inflection happens faster and is steeper in uh, in specialties which use computer vision and specialties where everything is integrated into devices so for the obvious example being stuff with ct and x-ray workflows right where a lot of the assisted segmentation or the nodule detection and stuff is already in pre-existing clinical software and it's much easier to vertically integrate that into an existing you know clinical pathway 
stuff with electronic health record data, big data, multimodal data, you know, lags far behind in terms mm. of where we are in terms of AI research maturity. Um, I think that the key bit of that and the bit that we're working on now is it's the data that's important, right? Because part of this was to look at equity across research being produced. But what you really want to know is what is the equity in the data that the AI is being trained on? Have we got a lot of data duplication? Is all the data just data sets from, you know, rich American cities? Um, right. So we, we've been training similar models to uh, try and extract uh, database and data set size details from these papers. So stay tuned for that. There's a good team working on that as well. Say that last part again. So there's a, the next step in the project is your. Yeah, so we, we've been training these natural language processing models to extract information from the papers. Oh, about from the papers. actual paper. Wow. Yeah. So to, you know, they can go through all the papers and they can just say this used what data and how many patients were in this data set, that sort of thing. Wow. So hopefully you can then start to automatically map exactly where all the data that's been used in AI research is, is coming from. That's incredible. This is a silly question, but how do you guys get behind, get past the paywalls that a lot of these academic publishers have? That's not what to ask. Okay. Yeah, sorry. We'll, we'll ask that. <laughs> That's funny. No, wow. I joke. There's a, there's, um, so actually, if you speak to sort of Science Direct or El Sevier or, you know, or these publishers, there are ways to actually access their, they've got often have data mining APIs, which is quite cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, any other fun project ideas in the pipeline? Um, a lot of things, a lot of oh, things. Oh, okay. it's still brewing, yeah. still brewing. Okay. Okay. I, I guess, you know, the, the, the whole vertical integration thing we talked about, so I, I sort of reeled off a list of problems at you, but you know, there, there are, we are trying to implement this kind of stuff, um, in, in different places in the NHS. Uh, so for example, in London, one of the things we're doing is trying to push these data flows onto the central platform, which can then host the infrastructure to develop, but also deploy the AI onto these data flows, mm -hmm. but also having truly, you know, really cross-disciplinary teams that have expertise everywhere from data engineering up to model deployment, and then developing new frameworks, which mean that we can, you know, safely deploy and monitor these models, you know, going forward. There's also a lot of other work being done by my colleagues in other centers to do with this kind of AI uh, deployment. Uh, there's one in particular called an AI deployment engine that they're building in uh, King's uh, College in London, uh, which mm -hmm. is also a sort of agnostic platform which can take in all sorts of different uh, data types and then have a, almost an app store where you can uh, deploy different models and then look at outcomes afterwards. So, you know, a lot of the work uh, happening at the moment is uh, around the infrastructure side, which is kind of what we talked about earlier. Not so much the algorithms, but the infrastructure for deploying uh, these models. Yeah. Uh, earlier, we were talking about how, or you mentioned how different specialties in medicine are, they have more uh, deployment or they're a bit more ahead, you know, such as like in med in medical imaging, radiology. Yeah. Um, they have... Um, you know, algorithms already deploy. I, I'm curious, have you noticed that, uh, yeah, like where, which specialties would you say have had the, the best vertical integration kind of, you know, from start to finish? Um, and can you kind um, of talk about some examples? Yeah, I think the most success happens where the, uh, whoever is deploying the AI already owns the context uh, and the pathway, if that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. So let's say the model, the context for the model is something in a radiologist workflow uh, where you're getting assistance in, let's say, segmenting a lesion or you're getting assistance in flagging nodules uh, for diagnosis. So a lot of that already, you know, it exists as the workflow exists as part of radiology software of sort of imaging reporting software. And what we're seeing is a lot of companies who provide these sort of software tools are also putting the AI within that pipeline, if that makes sense. And of course, that mm-hmm. reduces the distance between uh, developing your model and getting it to the front lines, uh, because it's already in a quite a well you know, validated pathway. And, and there's not as many barriers to getting clinicians to change their practice and use the AI. Certainly, the other reason that computer vision is is much ahead is because of algorithmic advances. Then you know we definitely shouldn't uh, play that down at all. Um, uh, that's probably far ahead of the kind of stuff we can do with electronic yeah. health record data. And then the third reason is data quality, uh, because you know you do oh, have yeah. Yeah. variations in, in imaging, but nowhere near the number of data quality issues you have in multimodal data or in electronic health record data. Mm. Uh, these are some of our more closing questions. Uh, first mm. one is, uh, how has mentorship shaped your path? Uh, mentorship? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely and completely. So I'm sort of extraordinarily lucky to work in the place I do with like the people I do. Uh, I'm working with many great people in teams. Um, I'm sure you won't mind me giving them a shout out. You know, there's there's a prof, uh, James Teo at King's. Uh, he's amazing, very pragmatic. He's done you know, huge amounts of work at the cutting edge of uh, data, AI, natural language processing uh, with the type of sort of direct application that we've uh, spoken of. Um, other mentors, like one of my supervisors, uh, Hutan Ashrafian, you know, he's he's a visionary. He can sort of see the health world like 10 years ahead. Uh, also, Leo Selly, he's one of yours. He's at MIT. He's like a world leader in understanding. One of yours. <laughs> Real, real implications of bias, right, in health data and AI. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a long list. Uh, mm. But, yeah, I mean, you often you feel like a fool, you know, like you're trying to simulate the most inspiring bits from uh, different mentors. Uh, mm. But, yeah, very lucky to work with people like that. So, absolutely. What do you think the future of AI in medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? Uh, I mean... I think we're currently in like an age of uh, we want AI and we want it now, right? So there's mm. a lot of hype. There's a lot of push to get AI out there. Uh, I wonder if we're at the top or we've crested that uh, hype peak. And I wonder if there'll be some stormy waters before we settle at some point where the utility of AI actually becomes more clear. I mean, mm. I certainly know of recently, I don't know whether this is true internationally of uh, quite a few AI startups that haven't managed to get second rounds of funding. But, you know, the NHS is, isn't the easiest market to enter. Uh, certainly, we talked about how successful companies, you know, they also own the context for the models that they want to deploy. Um, I mean, in, in the next decade or two, I think in the NHS, uh, AI for diagnostic imaging pathways, it's likely to continue to be the most successful, uh, but hopefully we'll have a clearer idea of what the actual risks, outcomes and patient impact will be from that sort of deployment uh, by 10 years down the line. I'd hope that the infrastructure we've been talking about to support uh, these sort of big population data flows and support AI there will be much more mature 
but I suspect we'll be looking at a lot more models for things like forecasting and service optimization rather than true individual risk prediction until, you know, at least until we fully understand biases and, and uh, data quality issues that we have. And, uh, and something we touched about in that paper, which is I, I would really hope that we see uh, more vertically integrated, sustainable AI projects in low to low income countries, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. both develop the baseline digital and data infrastructure there, uh, trains local teams to develop AI locally, and most importantly, supplies predictions in the middle of these pathways, which are genuinely resource bottlenecks. Yeah. You know, we spend, not to get into another rant, but we spend hundreds of millions, not billions on AI for interesting questions. You know, can an AI do this that a human can do? Oh, it can, it's really interesting. But in these pathways, which are not bottlenecks, which are saturated, you yeah. know, because function quite efficiently. And the gain you have by introducing AI into those sort of pathways is, is minimal. You know, it's a marginal gain. Whereas there's many, many potential use cases and targets elsewhere, which you'd get a lot more value from by uh, investing in. Yeah, I almost kind of wonder if those places would be better for it. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's, especially in the US, there's so much um, resistance to change and in the sense of, you know, different hospitals and different states have their own EHR, their own data, like all their infrastructure is kind of like, it's uh, not, not old and outdated, but it's like set, you know what I mean? And it's really hard to get them to talk to each other. Um, yeah. But it'd be interesting to kind of start from the ground up somewhere else. And then you kind of you build proactively, prospectively, mm -hmm. this model that or this infrastructure that, okay, we were going to have like from the ground up, we're going to design it so that it's ready to, yeah, um, you know, iterate models and improve on itself and validate on itself, and you know, like that would that would be pretty cool, right? Yeah, I mean, we we talk about the project uh, by uh, Waswa in Uganda, which is in that paper for um, cervical cancer. But you know, the vital thing is we need to be empowering uh, locals to develop that infrastructure and to upskill them and to train them because they're the ones who are going to be, you know, identifying new use cases. They're going to be evolving the infrastructure as we go along. They're going to be yeah. maintaining models, you know, and they're the ones who know where the bottlenecks are and, you know, what's most important. Instead of the current model, which is just too frequent at the moment, which is we, a company designs a model using data from different places, wherever they get their hands on and tries to take it to these locations. It doesn't oh, yeah. work, as yeah. we've seen. Time again. Um, what advice would you give to yourself when you were just finishing medical school? Probably learn to code earlier. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. <laughs> I got to do that more. <laughs> uh, and, and these are just some more personal questions just to close out yeah, the sure. interview. Um, uh, first question is what brings you joy? What brings me joy? Uh, well, my uh, family, my wife, my uh, seven-month-year-old baby boy, for sure. Seven months? Yeah. Congratulations. Busy times, Busy times. thank you. Um, wow. You're able and, to get sleep? Uh, less than before. <laughs> Could have more. Could do with more. No, it's good. It's all good. Um, yeah, family, friends, and also work. I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to do stuff that I enjoy. Are you still working as an intensivist, by the way? Uh, yeah, on and off. So I, I do the occasional shift, but my contract at the moment full-time is for academic work. Oh, cool. Uh, last question is, 
what gives your life meaning uh i mean probably the same answer as, mm. as before oh, right? yeah i mean it's kind of there's the uh, idealistic view that you know as clinicians we should do things which change things for the better and that's definitely true i guess the stuff i do now is probably on a different level uh, but personally still you know family friends and my work mm. and uh, any closing thoughts for our listeners um, on, on anything <laughs> get get out there and learn and do uh, and you know we i guess this the, the whole theme of this is is machine learning right and you know machine learning is great it's really exciting but at the end of the day beyond all the hype it's just a tool it's just uh, statistics it's like computational algorithms right and uh, there's lots of other important bits behind it and focus on where it's useful and not just the hypey bits Mm, i like that i like that i think very very often we forget that machine learning is just a tool yeah yeah wow well thank you so much dr zhang not at all thanks so much for having me yeah, I had a lot of fun this interview. It was it was great to talk to yeah. someone from the UK. Yeah, it was great to talk to someone from the US. <laughs> I jest. Yeah, if you ever come over, drop me a line. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Thanks very much. <laughs>